This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MetLife, Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity. Now, join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates New England Operations, and we're glad you could join us again today. Remember, you can find all the Ringler Radio shows on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or at the Legal Talk Network website, legaltalknetwork.com. Well, this special edition of Ringler Radio is coming to you direct from the 2006 ATLA convention here in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I want to tell you that anyone who hasn't been here to Seattle, you're going to love it. It's been a a beautiful city for us to be in, and uh, the weather is a lot better than people might make you think. And uh, I'm lucky to have here with me today as a co-host one of our really great Ringler Associates right here from the Seattle area. That's Tony Robinson, and Tony's been a a broker for us for a number of years now. Before that, he was in the insurance business, and uh, Tony... You didn't have a long way to come for uh, today's show, did you? No, I just had to come across the bridge, Larry. Well, there are a lot of bridges here, I notice, in Seattle, and a lot of them are floating. They're not even, uh, they're not even up in the air. It's very we're, interesting. We're very advanced here, Larry. You, <laughs> you sure are. Well, listen, our topic today is one that every trial attorney is familiar with, and that's you know when uh, lawyers demand and other parties demand that a confidentiality clause be included in the settlement agreement. But, uh, you know, should settlements be confidential and who wants them to be confidential and sometimes defense attorneys or plaintiffs uh, make that uh, request major corporations also are very concerned about the issue of confidentiality and it's an issue that's uh, on the hot button plate right now some people out there would like to see settlements especially in large product liability cases uh, remain public and never uh, be subject to confidentiality clauses and uh, tony we have a couple of guests here today that are going to talk about it yeah, thanks, Larry. To help us discuss the issue today, I've got attorney Paul Stripmatter from the Seattle and Hoquiam law firm of Stripmatter, Kessler, Whalen, Withy, and Coluccio. And I've had the pleasure of working with Paul on a number of cases, uh, most recently a case where this, this same issue was raised uh, towards the end of the mediation. And uh, I thought, I think Paul is the perfect person to, uh, to kind of discuss some of the finer points of the issue. Paul's been a key figure in several multi-million dollar settlements, product liability cases, and, and really any kind of uh, negligent torts. Uh, Paul is a former president of the Washington State Trial Association, the Washington State Bar Association. Uh, He's a founding member and former president of Trial Lawyers for Public Justice. Um, In 2003, Paul was awarded the uh, Pursuit of Justice Award by the American Bar Association. So, Paul, uh, thank you for coming here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, this discussion. I think it's a very important topic. Great. Well, also joining us here in Seattle is Professor Lewis Walcher from the University of Washington School of Law. Uh, Professor Walcher has been teaching law for uh, more than 20 years. Before his teaching career, he, w- he was a partner in the law firm of Pettit & Martin in San Francisco. I also noticed that he's a graduate of Harvard Law School, an editor of the Harvard Law Review, and uh, anyone that's lived in Boston for a while is a friend of mine. So thank you uh, very much, Professor, for coming, uh, and welcome to Ringler Radio. Thank you, Larry. I I appreciate your asking me to be here. Thank you. 
Well, let's uh, start by uh, me raising a few cases as examples uh, of the around the area of confidentiality, and, and we can then branch out from there. Uh, in the late 1990s, uh, many of us remember the Firestone Tire cases, and Firestone Tire uh, reportedly settled for millions out of court with people who claimed they were injured by these defective tires, but just how much was paid was never disclosed because of confidentiality clauses. So the issue of how much was paid became under wraps. Uh, we remember former basketball star Dennis Rodman, who secretly secretly paid a photographer for kicking him in the groin, ouch, during a game, and a confidentiality agreement was signed, but the terms were later released after the photographer was sued by the IRS for failure to disclose income from the settlement. So it got out uh, in a circuitous way. General Motors settled numerous lawsuits resulting from fatal crashes and fires involving pickup trucks with side-mounted gasoline tanks. Uh, GM and the victims' families have never disclosed the terms, and according to the New York Times, these agreements are common at GM and other auto manufacturers as well. The list goes on and on, but the real question is this. Does a company's right to keep its business affairs secret outweigh the public's right to information about potentially harmful products? Paul, let's start with your thoughts on that basic question. You know, there's, um, there's really two fundamental purposes in our tort system, the tort system being uh, lawsuits that are brought by people that are injured. Certainly one of the purposes is to compensate the injured party for uh, what injuries that they've suffered if those injuries have been caused by the negligence of someone else. But the second purpose is to change people's conduct. That is to get them to modify their conduct so that they're safer, they're not negligent in the future. And when you get into the area of having confidentiality agreements or secrecy agreements about this, then the public doesn't know and it doesn't uh, induce people to change their conduct. This is really bad public policy for everyone. Uh, secondly, I would point out that uh, when, when you do this, uh, the, the defense side of the case, they're still sharing all this information about what their defects are and what they're paying out on these claims, but they don't want the public to know because they don't want them to know about the potential injuries that could be here or the potential claims that could be brought. As a result, it makes every single case more expensive and more difficult to bring because you don't have the information about the other cases that have been filed and resolved. So just on a matter of public policy, it seems to me that uh, this shouldn't be allowed. Well, this is a debate that's been going on for a while, uh, Professor Walcher. Uh, how, how about your thoughts, uh, this issue of privacy of a company's rights to keep its business affairs to themselves and the public's right to know? Well, I think it's important uh, before we uh, rush to judgment on the question to look uh, at some clarification. Um, the first uh, bit of clarification I'd like to make is that um, we have to distinguish between a settlement agreement between the parties and court-ordered secrecy, which is a fundamental uh, distinction that sometimes get mixed, the, the two get mixed up. And with court-ordered secrecy, we have a little bit more uh, judicial discretion of the type that would uh, preclude uh, hiding um, dangers to the public of the type that uh, Paul mentioned. Uh, with respect to the function of the tort system, I agree completely with Paul that the two major uh, functions are compensation to victims and what is what lawyers call deterrence or getting people to change their behavior. But there is a third function that is usually um, globally spoken of in connection with the legal system, and that is symbolic. It's uh, directed to the public. Uh, 
and um, the rule of law not only must be done, but must be seen to be done. So the scholarship on the question of confidentiality agreements uh, tends to point out that there is a balance or, um, how shall I put it, a, a contradiction uh, inherent in the structure of uh, the problem that we're discussing today. On the one hand, um, as Paul correctly says, by keeping secret certain important information about the nature of their behavior, defendants uh, are allowed to undercut the deterrent function of the tort system. That is to say, the public doesn't know, and therefore, um, and therefore uh, the deterrence is not there. On the other hand, uh, scholars who write about this question have also pointed out that uh, secrecy agreements allow more candid discussion in settlements. Uh, they sometimes uh, increase the amount available to victims because the defendants are willing to pay for that extra uh, damage because they know that this won't get out, the issues won't get out. Uh, some might call that uh, hush money. but. Um, and then the symbolic value uh, brings the public into the problem, and that is the question of, um, of whether the public is allowed to see uh, well, what has occurred. Professor, I think that brings up an interesting point, and, and a lot of what we deal with in, in the course of the, the settlement process is, is our role as a structured settlement broker is dealing with tax issues, uh, helping the clients kind of use the money that's being offered to take care of their future needs. But um, So the tax issue is kind of critical to what we talk about, and, and a lot of times... Uh, the parties will negotiate throughout the course of a long mediation and get very close to a number that, that is going to satisfy both parties. Uh, and then at the end, this, this idea of having to make the settlement confidential uh, becomes a contingency of actually settling the case. And I think that becomes the bigger issue. And then to the extent that there's dollars added beyond that, it creates a tax problem for the plaintiff a lot of times. And that's, that's an issue we uh, struggle with. Well, Paul, what about uh, this issue that uh, making the clauses for confidentiality a contingency of the settlement itself? Uh, we, we see this, as, as Tony said. I had a case once where uh, the case was negotiated over a long period of time during the day. It settled finally for $3 million after a contentious uh, negotiation. And then it, almost as a whoops after the fact, the defendants clamored to get confidentiality. And the plaintiff attorney, I thought... Uh, interestingly said, if you want confidentiality, it's going to cost you a lot more money. And uh, they actually, he actually extracted another $100,000 for the confidentiality clause, which the defendants actually paid because uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't negotiated part, as part of the daytime, day-long uh, process. So uh, I've seen this many times where, where it becomes a sticking point sometimes in these cases to get this confidentiality as a contingency. Well, as often as we're seeing this, you'd think we'd all consider it at the beginning of the, the negotiations, but it doesn't seem to work that way. No, it doesn't. You come in uh, uh, focused on the liability and damage issues in the case, and uh, you discuss those and, and negotiate on those all day long, and then you're right. It's at the end of the day. You've reached a number. You think everything's done, and all of a sudden, they bring up this bugaboo wanting uh, confidentiality. I haven't had uh, as good a luck as apparently they had in that other case, but I think it's imperative uh, for the lawyers to say, listen, if you're going to ask for confidentiality, then you're going to need to pay for that. And this is really true now since this Dennis Rodman case uh, with the IRS saying, we need to know what dollar figure needs to be allocated to the confidentiality because that's taxable. 
the settlement portion for your injury is not taxable. So any lawyer out there who does agree to a confidentiality order and does not get paid separately for this is really creating a huge risk for his or her client. Well, you know, part of it is what we call, what I call the carve-outs on the confidentiality. You know, confidentiality is clamored for at the end of a negotiation, and then the question comes up, what do you mean by confidentiality? And, and I think what's important is to carve out those elements such as, you know, we're not confidential as it, as it relates to reporting to tax authorities, even speaking to your own neighbors or friends. What they're really, I think what most attorneys are, are concerned about and most defense-oriented, uh, like I say, corporations are concerned about, are the uh, the headlines, the splash, the uh, the TV announcements, the 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 um, the more the biggest publicity about the case, rather than some of those other issues? And I think it's very important to identify what exactly is meant by confidentiality, because it's confusing for all the parties, especially the especially the plaintiff. They don't, they don't know if they should open their mouth and even tell their brother-in-law. So it's it's very difficult. Uh, Professor, how is there a a real business interest for the corporations that want to keep this confidentiality, protecting trade secrets or something along those lines? Well, there are, uh, to be sure, legitimate and illegitimate business interests um, possible in any situation such as this. And one you mentioned is trade secrets or information that uh, is unearthed in uh, non-filed discovery, I might add, uh, because settlement agreements can't on their own affect um, filed discovery. Uh, so we're speaking predominantly, if we're only talking about settlement agreements as opposed to judicial orders for secrecy, sealing the record, we're only speaking about unfiled discovery. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there is a privacy interest on the part of the corporation, and that shouldn't be denied in any sort of serious pub- public policy analysis of the issue. Uh, on the other hand, there, there have been cases where there are privacy interests on the part of the plaintiff. Um, I'm thinking primarily of the molestation, the priest molestation cases where um, the claim has been made anyway that the plaintiffs would rather not have their history of sexual uh, abuse be brought up in front of the jury. And there was even an instance um, in the Dalcon Shield litigation where the uh, defense counsel asked embarrassing questions of a sexual nature of the plaintiffs if with apparently the strategy of embarrassing them into settlement because the information then would come out in trial and would embarrass them. So I can imagine cases um, uh, where the plaintiff's interest in privacy is also involved. And um, this in- underscores a point I always like to make to my students. There is no single solution to any important public policy problem. You have to be very fact-sensitive. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I've had plaintiff attorneys in cases I've ne- I've been involved in the negotiation on uh, actually want to have a confidentiality clause to protect the simple fact that their client is getting a lot of money. Uh, you know, when this when the word gets out that the client has received uh, a big settlement amount, a lot of people start showing up at the door. So it it really helped the client in that case. But but Paul, is there a growing trend uh, for most? plaintiff attorneys and trial lawyers to fight against these confidentiality clauses? Yes, more and more so. Uh, Certainly, as I mentioned earlier, this tax decision in the Rodman case is one of it because Mm -hmm. of the uh, financial implications uh, to the the, uh, plaintiff. But it was really interesting in one of the uh, latest debates on products liability, uh, the those that were trying to seek uh, tort reform were suggesting that it was the fault of plaintiff's lawyers for agreeing to secrecy orders that the information didn't come out about the Firestone tires. 
because everyone had been signing these secrecy agreements. And so if that's the way the debate is going to go, then I can assure you more and more plaintiff's lawyers are going to refuse to sign these and, and shouldn't as a matter of, of policy. Our firm, uh, right in our retainer agreement, uh, says that we do encourage our clients not to agree to confidentiality. And ultimately, it's their decision uh, on the day of the settlement. And, you know, it's a very important uh, uh, consideration, as you pointed out, that uh, they don't want everybody to know how much money they've gotten. So sometimes they say, okay, I will agree to this. But we certainly encourage them as a matter of policy not to agree to these. And and that's certainly what I advocate for on behalf of my clients. Uh, Paul, you know, Larry mentioned earlier breaking out certain elements of the confidentiality. And a lot of times... Uh, you know, it's in the interest maybe of both parties to hide or to keep secret how much money is the case is settling for. But what would the benefits be to the public of releasing the facts of the case and what the allegations are that are being made and really, you know, what, what the defendant did wrong? How would the public benefit from that? Yeah, the public will benefit from that. And I don't see nearly as much of a problem about uh, not disclosing the amount of the settlement. But when we're talking about dangerous products, the public's entitled to know about those dangerous products and the and the uh, defects that have been found in them as a result of litigation, or they're entitled to know about a doctor uh, who has, for the uh, fifth time, been uh, uh, successfully sued as a result of their medical negligence. I mean, that's the public should know that, mm-hmm. but before uh, someone decides to go back and buy that product or uh, be served by that particular health care provider. And Professor, how how Will the defendants or, you know, the settling parties benefit from keeping some of these things secret? Well, I've mentioned before uh, in response to your earlier question that there are issues of privacy on both sides. But I want to um, stress uh, with with uh, Paul that there have been a number of very important instances in which public safety has been jeopardized by confidentiality agreements. And, you know, just to list a few, the rely tampon uh, dispute with Procter & Gamble uh, the Ford Pinto case, of course, uh, the Firestone Bridgestone uh, issue with uh, Ford Explorer rollovers, and the Catholic priest uh, molestation cases. Sure. All of these, a credible argument has been made, uh, I think persuasively, that um, the confidentiality agreement has uh, precluded people from being aware of the problem and therefore jeopardized public safety. And how would the disclosure hurt those, those defendants? Well, uh, the, again, as I said earlier, there's a sort of legitimate and illegitimate reasons to be uh, for a defendant to be uh, concerned, and obviously it would hurt those companies and and the Catholic Church to know, uh, for people to know about the problem and therefore to file suit against them. But that kind of hurt, I think, we would all agree is is a legitimate public concern. Sure. As on the o- opposite side, I mean, as I said, uh, if if there is unfiled discovery. And we're talking now about things that go beyond just the amount of the settlement, but also information uh, of an embarrassing nature about the defendant or the defendant's employees. Then we have the same old privacy concerns that are involved in, um, you know, in any kind of settlement agreement. And I already listed those. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there is an awful lot more to talk about on this topic. So uh, we're going to do that in about 60 seconds. Let's take some time now to hear from the people who make Ringler Radio a reality. We'll be back in about uh, a minute and talk a lot more with our two guests on the subject of confidentiality agreements. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. 
Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ring the Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MetLife, Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, and our topic today is confidentiality agreements. Uh, very interesting and important topic. Our guests are Attorney Paul Stripmatter and Professor Lewis Walcher, both from this fine city of Seattle, where Ringler Radio is being recorded today. And uh, we've been here for almost a week now at the Atla Convention and having a tremendous time and interviewing some great guests. My co-host today is the Ringler Associate from right here in Seattle, Tony Robinson. And, Tony, I think this has been a, a great week. Haven't you uh, had a good time? Absolutely. And I, I, we've had Chamber of Commerce weather this week, as you pointed out. <laughs> it's, it's been great. Well, Paul, we were talking before the break about uh, this whole issue of disclosure and, and how it either helps or hurts uh, various parties. What about the issue of uh, disclosure leading to copycat lawsuits or, or more plaintiffs seeking larger settlements, uh, kind of getting uh, juiced by what they're hearing and then moving forward and trying to follow suit is that is that a problem out there copycat lawsuits well i guess uh, it depends on the the facts of an individual case uh, obviously if there is the disclosure of these issues then there's more information for the public to realize that they have been the victim of uh, of a defective product or uh, some other improper conduct by a defendant and they may be more likely to consult with a lawyer and in the other hand, uh, the lawyers themselves will have more information to realize that there's a viable lawsuit there. Uh, I, I'm not sure what copycat means, but uh, if, it, if it means, in fact, that there's a defective product that's been proven to be defective, then I think it's important that uh, other claims also be brought in order to get rid of a, such a product. You know, it's interesting. Uh, oftentimes when things happen to, to the public, they're not even aware that they can bring a lawsuit. They, they think it's their own fault. They, they're not, especially in product liability matters, uh, someone sticks their foot under a lawnmower and gets the toe chopped off. They don't realize that maybe there's some defect there that, that may, you know, give rise to some litigation. And what they find sometimes is on the Internet. There are, you know, websites out there that speak to this whole issue because of the, you know, the deluge of information coming in on other cases. And 
uh, obviously the manufacturer of the of the lawnmower wants this kept away and, and doesn't want the, uh, the these issues known. So they're clamoring for confidentiality, and yet the uh, the plaintiffs out there are, want it to be known. And I think from a public policy standpoint, obviously, as you say, Professor, it's important to have that information out there. Uh, but oftentimes plaintiffs don't even know where to go to get it. So it's uh, it's an education process, I'm sure, on both sides. Yes, I, I would say um, uh, there have been uh, some horror stories on the other side, though, in, in all fairness. Uh, the Audi 5000 fiasco was a good example where right. uh, the 60 Minutes program uh, ran an st- uh, expose of a, of a problem that didn't exist, actually, as subsequent investigation showed. Well, facts are important. Exactly. <laughs> anyway... What about, uh, Professor, any laws out there that restrict what can be written into confidentiality agreements? Is, uh, are there any uh, prohibitions or, or things that have been uh, already decided upon? Uh, well, Larry, there are um, precious few, actually. Uh, during the 1990s, there were, was legi- uh, legislation proposed in the federal level and also 25, uh, 30 state bills, uh, 25 of which failed. There was also a model rule in the ABA that would make it unethical for an attorney to enter into a deal if it jeopardized the public safety of this sort. And uh, that was turned down on the theory that if it was lawful for a client to enter into an agreement, it ought not to be unethical for an attorney to advocate it. Uh, Today, basically, there are only a few states, um, Texas uh, and Florida. Florida, in particular, uh, uh, makes it void against public policy to uh, enter into one of these agreements if it hides a public hazard, quote-unquote. Arkansas, Washington, and a couple of other states have uh, litigation-specific type uh, uh, legislation. Um, In Arkansas and Washington, for example, uh, these um, contracts are void if they affect environmental hazards. Uh, but but that leaves out other kinds of litigation. So the bottom line is you have to be careful to investigate the state you're litigating in, but the odds are there will be no um, public regulation uh, other than the general rules of ethics. You know, Paul, what, what tends to be the punishment uh, if confidentiality clauses are breached? This has always become an issue uh, with most of these agreements that these confidentiality clauses are clamored for and they're put in, and then if for some reason the confidentiality is is, is breached, um, and there's no specific you know damage amount in the in the agreement, how are how are people dealing with that? I've not had any personal experience with that. Fortunately, I do know that there have been some lawsuits that have been brought for breach of contract uh, for the breach of the confidentiality, and I think the position generally taken is that if there was not a liquidated damages clause. In the agreement, in other words, there wasn't some specific sum set saying if you breach this, this is what you're going to have to pay. Then they usually request that the entire settlement amount have to go back to the defendant. And I don't know, uh, I'm sorry, I can't really tell you what success they've had, but I know that that's the position that's been taken. Uh, I suppose that uh, whatever settlements came out of those lawsuits ended up uh, being uh, confidential. Yeah, it brings up an interesting point. If, if the settlement was so contingent on uh, the confidentiality, is it easy to reach a settlement for your client if we agree to do a confidentiality? You know, I, I just tell them up front that uh, we do not agree to confidentiality. And uh, if, if that is going to be something that you want in this agreement, uh, defendant, then uh, let's just go try the case. We're not going to be able to reach a settlement. Uh, because it can be a, a real uh, real obstruction. But 
I just want to make sure that plaintiff's lawyers out there, as I mentioned earlier, are making sure that if there's going to be one, they set a specific dollar agreement for the value of it, and they negotiate separately for that so that they don't create tax problems for the plaintiffs. Well, you're bringing up a great point because that tends to have been the problem all along, that there's no there's no liquidated damages clause in there, and uh, it becomes a paper tiger kind of a clause, and uh, it's a lot better, if, as you say, if there's specificity there. Tony, there was something uh, here in Seattle. The Seattle Times did an investigation. Why don't you talk about that around the issue of confidentiality? Yeah, the local paper uh, ran a series of articles talking about confidentiality in settlements, and I think it was more to uh, what the professor mentioned earlier, where they were court-ordered confidentialities. That, um, but a lot of these were negotiated, and the court simply approved it. A lot of them were minors' cases. But... Uh, you know, when this was disclosed to the public, I think to all of us we know it's fairly common, but when it was in the paper and, and people saw how prevalent it was and some of the reasons behind uh, sealing of these files, it really kind of created uh, some rancor. Exactly. Does that surprise you, Paul? Or No, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think the public should be outraged uh, by this. I will say in the defense of the judges that generally they were being presented with something that was being agreed to by both sides, and our judges have worked very hard and overworked, and, and uh, maybe they didn't do as rigorous an analysis as, as they should have done to protect the public's interest on this, and they've just uh, gone ahead and signed these uh, orders. But uh, there was, there was uh, uh, quite an outcry, uh, certainly by the press, on this uh, topic, and I know there's been a reaction by the judges themselves because uh, I've been back in front of them, and uh, they're they're looking at these issues now very, very closely. Well, that's that's a good thing. Professor, any, any thoughts on it from your perspective? Well, I think it's a um, complicated and difficult problem, but on balance I tend to agree with Paul that the public interest outweighs the, uh, the, the whatever privacy interests there are on the part of the uh, defendant in most cases. Um, I don't want to say that this is a universal rule, but in most cases I would tend to agree with Paul's coming, uh, coming down on the side of public safety. Well, before we uh, finish our discussion here, any other thoughts you have uh, that you want to get across to the public? Uh, well, I'd like to Paul. mention uh, Trial Lawyers for Public Justice, which is um, a public interest law firm that's got about uh, 3,500 uh, lawyers across the nation that uh, are involved in that organization. One of the uh, programs that they have is to bring lawsuits to unseal or to release the information uh, after there's been a court order uh, on a file. They've brought a number of such cases uh, successfully, and I think it's really helped uh, bring more attention to the issue and also bring important information about defective products uh, uh, to the to the public, and I'm, I'm really proud of what uh, TLPJ has done in that regard, and, and I, I know they're going to continue to do that. Well, let's give them a, a plug here. Is there a website or some, someone wants to reach their uh, organization? Is there something there that they can talk to, or should they just get in touch with you? Well, they could give me a call uh, if they like. Uh, our um, offices are in Washington, D.C. and in Oakland, and I'm sorry, I can't give you uh, <laughs> the, the, the website right now. But um, All right, well, what about your own website? How do people get in touch with you? Well, uh, uh, or an email or a phone number. Yeah, stripmatterkessler.com, and uh, it'll give you all the information about our firm and give you a phone number uh, for me, and I'd be happy to respond to anybody that uh, is seeking that information. Well, that's uh, interesting. How about you, uh, Professor? How would people get in touch with you if they want to 
talk more about this well, issue or others. I'm I'm unfortunately perhaps too visible on the web <laughs> on the website for the University of Washington Law School, which is uh, www.law.washington.edu. Well, that's great, Tony. Uh, I think this has been a, a tremendous uh, conversation here on this issue of. Uh, confidentiality agreements. It's an interesting topic and one I think we're going to wrestle with more and more. Well, I'd like to thank our guest attorney Paul Stripmatter and Professor Lewis Walcher, both from here in Seattle. And uh, just for your information, folks, uh, I've just been uh, handed the uh, information that the uh, website for the the organization that uh, Paul mentioned is tlpj.org. And that's uh, that's pretty quick uh, producer thinking, isn't it, Paul? Oh, I'm telling you, you guys are right on the job. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, thank you very much. And uh, for all of you out there in the audience, I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. And now go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MedLife, Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity.